You are listening to The Spiritual Exercises. I'm Rachel Amaday. Thank you so much for being here. You guys, it is November 2023. I cannot believe it. I've been looking back at some of the podcasts that I created for y'all this past year, and I can't believe how time has flown by. Um, I also am just so thrilled that we've gotten to study some of these topics together and just grateful for those of you who've been so supportive of this journey of mine. Um, And I I honestly actually just want to come straight out and apologize to all of you, my amazing supporters. Um, I know you believe in me, you believe in this podcast, and you believe in these teachings. And I have not been able to in the past year really expand what I've done with this. And I've wanted to. My heart has been wanting to. But I've wanted to do it for free. I don't want my teachings to cost people money. And so I have to work a lot of other jobs, do a lot of other things. And I have been racking my brain to try to figure out how to... um, get people into this this ecosystem, how, how we can start talking to each other more, helping each other out more, um, but also how I can fund this in a way that doesn't require you to give any extra money to me, <laughs> which doesn't make any sense, right? But you know what? I think I have finally figured this out. I am super excited. I'm going to be sharing this with you guys in the next few weeks, a way that you can actually help me continue to do this podcast and have more time for it, which is what I've been looking for, more time for it, still be able to pay my bills. I want to be like Paul. I love that Paul was called a tent maker in scripture and he funded his ministry off of his own work. He made prayer shawls and he sold them. And this is how he funded his ministry. I love that model. That model to me makes so much sense because I think teaching God's word, this stuff should be available to everybody. This is a message God not only gave us for free, but he sent his son to die on behalf of our understanding of his word and for us to be united to him. And it just has always felt weird to me to ask for subscriptions for this. So I have an alternative and I think I don't know. I think some of you are going to really love this. I also think it it provides an additional um, service to you guys, what I'm working on and what I'm doing um, as a researcher and just as somebody who's very heavily involved in some of these places that I'm going to be bringing to you guys. So anyways, I'm excited about what God may have helped me discover. I'm not going to put it on him. I'm going to just say, I personally have wanted this. This has been a desire of my heart for a while. And I've guys, I've been working on it. And it's partially why I've been a little bit absent the last few weeks. Um, so I'm going to have more time to do this podcast and to share this with more people and also provide something extra to you guys. That's not going to cost you anything extra, but that is still going to help me, um, fund my ministry. How cool is that? So, uh, be on the lookout for that news, that information here pretty soon. And I'm also really excited to bring you this podcast today. Uh, This one has become closer and closer and closer to my heart in the past year, this idea of the bride of Christ. 
what that really means. And I just keep coming back to this idea that I have, this vision that I have of someday seeing our Messiah, seeing Yeshua, knowing him, knowing he knows me and running into his arms and really um, knowing that we've been in relationship and excited for the next step in that relationship and that journey. And I think this, this picture, this picture of a marriage and a wedding, it gets so warped because society, the, the enemy has on purpose warped the picture of family, the, the wedding the ceremony, the bride, you know, and the groom, this, this stuff has become so warped that we sometimes feel funny about it when scripture is so clearly referencing it. I'd ask for you, as we talk about this today, try to put that sense of what you know about marriage and a wedding aside. Let's go to what the ideal is, the, the, the ideal that everybody kind of imagines and wishes for, right? I mean, have you ever really thought about what you wanted in a spouse. So if you're married already, did you do this before you met your spouse? Did you write down a list or just imagine, you know, a particular person or personality? Um, Did you stick to that list when you did find somebody? Did you make sure they checked every box? You know, I know some people that did. I know some people that like, you know, I better compromise on this. Um, But did you really dream about what that person would be and what a marriage would be like. And and did you imagine, if you're currently married, did you imagine a marriage like the one you currently have or were you imagining something different? Are you truly in a partnership or do you feel like you're in a dictatorship, <laughs> right? And this is not this is not necessarily for you to go, to go sit down and evaluate your marriage, you know, in a harsh way. I'm just saying, you know, we all have these feelings about marriage. We have these views of it. We have these experiences with it. Um, and it dictates a lot of how we feel about the concept of a wedding and a wedding feast with our Lord and Savior. But, you know, what you want is is a balanced mix, right, of, of all sorts of, you know, challenges to become more whole and wonderful moments. Sometimes in marriage, it feels like there's a lot of hard. Sometimes it feels blissful, right? Um, do you have trust and friendship and kindness in your marriage? Or is that, do you picture that if you're not married? Are you picturing that for your future? So whatever the marriage looks like that you're in, or maybe you're not in yet, can you imagine what you feel like a perfect one would be like? And guys, so much of society is centered around the concept of marriage. We've got stories and movies and myths and just social concepts that are based on the idea of marriage, real, committed, magnificent relationships. Um, and because, y- you know, we're attracted to this, right? So story after story, I mean, how many Hallmark movies do we see every year? And it is just about finding that perfect relationship, right? Not that I watch a lot of Hallmark movies, not really totally my thing, but I see them, you know, in my Netflix, not my Netflix, I shouldn't say that, I don't have Netflix, that's a lie, in my Amazon, um, you know, during the holidays, especially they have all these holiday, you know, Hallmark type films, um, we make these sorts of movies, we make these sorts of films, we make movies like The Notebook and, you know, all these things because we're built for a relationship and we're built 
for that type of union, a wedding, a marriage between a man and a woman where we can have children, we can create, right? That we're made for this. God put this in us. It's as old as human beings. And therefore it is ingrained into our very DNA, man and woman, God walking with them in a garden, a perfect place that's meant to nurture and bless. There's this joy of men and women, right? The joy of a man and woman creating children and performing the tasks that come underneath that umbrella of righteous dominion over the earth. It's a position, right? It's a diminutive position where you have dominion over a house and over a family and over kids and over what you're building. And of course, of course, we can't talk about marriage without talking about love. And this grandiose idea of what love really means and so much more than a feeling, right? It's a position. It's a servitude at times. It's, um, you know, you can be on, on top of a mountain and in a valley. Love is commitment. And we love to see that in films and movies, don't we? We love to see people sacrifice for one another because we, we relate so closely to how meaningful it is. I think about what Adam says about Eve, about Hava, when God creates her. And it is so close and so heartfelt and beautiful. He says this at last. It's like he's been waiting for eons, right? He says this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This oneness idea, right? This unity remains a theme throughout the rest of scripture. God is pursuing oneness with his church and his people. Is it any wonder that Yeshua left the father, just like the verse says, to come after the bride, to come after Israel? I mean, after having to divorce her in the Old Testament, after having to set her aside and his heart, the Bible says his heart was broken. He was broken over this divorce, having to leave his beloved bride because she had just cheated too much. After doing that, he was willing to kill the Adamic nature of mankind by taking it all upon his own flesh at the cross, becoming a new man capable now of remarrying his first love, his bride, with an accompanying new covenant, right? But it is not just Yeshua that becomes new and conquers death. His bride must do this because of his work as well. In Ezekiel 36, 24 through 28, it says this, For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. End quote. So this concept of making the bride new, right? Making his people new. This is echoed in the description of the new covenant that we find in Jeremiah 31. God's people will be made new with God's laws written on their hearts. When the Bible says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, it is not figurative language, guys. This is literal. 
This literal, the word, the law, and the prophets became flesh. Yeshua is the literal embodiment of his own laws. So when we take on his DNA, we become the word as well, just like the new covenant prophecy tells us we become the word like our groom. We reflect it. This is how, you know, uh, so, so much of my podcasts in the past have been about the what, what are we, how do, you know, what are we supposed to do in obedience to the Lord? This debate rages between denominations and churches, but I believe we're just supposed to do what the Bible says. The Bible's very clear. There's a simplicity in the gospel, and we muck it all up with a lot of our doctrines and theologies and our worship of mankind's ideas. We need to get back to what the Bible says. So we, we talk about the what of obedience a lot, but today I'd really like to talk about the why. Why care about what, how to be obedient? Why? A lot of Christianity, and I meet these people. I love these people. In fact, I'm friends with some of these people, but a lot of them are flippant about being obedient to the Lord. They just think, well, God, God's going to forgive me. And I don't, I don't really want to look into that. I don't want to really want to see if that's disobedience because that would mean I would have to change. And I don't think God cares that much if I do that. And, you know, I don't think God cares if I change. So then when you talk to people like that, then you have to dig a little further and go, well, what's your why? You know, because if you don't have the right why, you're not going to be interested in the what. The what doesn't matter. And God says this from the beginning, by the way, the idea that you are supposed to love the Lord and out of that love comes obedience. That is an Old Testament idea that is not new to Jesus. Loving God and loving others shows up in the Old Testament. That's why so many people could ask Yeshua in the New Testament, you know, what are the greatest commands? And he would say, love God and love others. And they would say, you have answered well. They all knew that already. That was, that's the basic understanding. But why? Why? Well, we're going to talk about a marriage and a wedding. The reason is because we're supposed to be like a bride, okay? And a bride who loves her groom. So in Revelation 21, starting in verse 9, it says this, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. End quote. So the text just goes on and on to describe this glorious city with 12 gates named for the 12 tribes. Which always reminds me, you know, FYI, the bride is a people from 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. So, guys, just a reminder, if you are if you don't believe you're grafted into Israel, you have no chance of being the bride. Okay, that's in Revelation. That's very clear. But, you know, that's a digression. We could talk about that at a later time. But the bride is glorious. Okay. How did she become so beautiful and refined? Did this just, just happen overnight? I mean... That's not really how things become beautiful and refined, is it? It's likely it was through fire and discipline and submission and humility. So what's the bride truly like and what is her purpose? Because this is also important. The why, what is your purpose? Um, 
So when you think of a bride and a wife, at least a good one, what do you picture? So here's some of the things that come to mind for me. Proverbs 31 comes to mind. She's wise, careful, has good standing, hardworking, cares for her family. I love how in Proverbs it says it could, you know, a, a good wife who can find, like a good woman who can find. It's like... Um, it's the perfect picture, actually, of the bride of Christ. Yeshua looking for people narrow as the gate, right? And you have to come in the right way into the sheepfold. And, you know, so it's kind of this really interesting picture of, like, how hard is it for Yeshua to find a good bride, right? A good wife. And we're going to get into some of that, too. But she's she's this incredible list of things, and she takes care of her family. We could go to Micah. Right in Micah 6, 8, it says, what is good for a man but to do justice, to love kindness and walk humbly with God. Okay, she's going to embody justice and humility, love and kindness and mercy, right? She's thoughtful. She loves righteousness. She's just. She's selfless. She's humble. She offers mercy where many would offer accusations, and she advocates for others to her husband. And I can show this to you um, through the patriarch, through you know one of the great people that's going to come back in the end and call the world to repentance. I believe this truly, Moses. So Moses in the Old Testament, time and again, he's dealing with the people coming out of Egypt. They're used to idolatry. They're used to idolatrous behavior. They don't um, they, they don't behave like a bride, right? They cheat on God, the first sign of their mediator being gone when Moses goes up the mountain to receive the laws of God. They immediately create a new mediator, which is idol worship, right? Which is just like what the Egyptians were doing. And, you know, they, they try to create a new Moses to get to their God, basically. And God is so furious with them, right? And yet, <clears throat> time and again, as this behavior, behavior comes out of the people of Israel. Moses continually goes to the Lord and prays for mercy and says, don't destroy them. You can't do that. You have made a covenant. You have said that this people would be your people. How is anyone going to believe you're a good God if you destroy your own people, right? Moses has all these prayers that are very thoughtful, very wise, and he, he softens God's heart time and again towards the people. Well, that to me is the essence of a bride, right? The essence of a wife. I mean, she goes to her husband to soften his heart on behalf of the family a lot, right? Don't we see that dynamic? You know, dads oftentimes are a little more hardcore with their punishments or a little more hardcore in how they do things, a little more harsh, um, a little bit more of that rock that you can kind of hit your head against sometimes. And you see the wife sometimes go in and advocate be merciful, honey. Let's be let's be gentle here. Let's be thoughtful about this. Let's um what you know, what do you think about doing this differently? That role, that role play that we see, that is so ingrained, right? That is so real. And I believe the bride is like Moses in this regard, the bride of Christ. She is an advocate for mercy and and correct justice. And it doesn't mean that Yeshua doesn't already have that, right? He embodies all these things. It means that she is like her husband. She is good at this. She understands his heart. When she goes to the to Yeshua, when when Moses went to God, went to Yeshua, he understood God's heart and he spoke directly to it. 
It's so beautiful. And I think it's a wonderful picture of one of the roles of the bride. So you see this again when you get to the end of John and Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter has to say yes three times. He's asked three times. He's hurt actually by the third time. Yeshua answers him, feed my sheep. And then he says, basically, and be ready to be martyred for the work that you're doing, right? I mean, this is this is a hard message to Peter. He's like, you're going to go serve my people. You're going to go bring in my sheep. You're going to give them this word, this life, this bread. And then you're going you're gonna to suffer for this work. And Peter's like, hey, hold on here, right? I mean, seriously, I'm going to do what you want, and then I'm going to be martyred. Well, this doesn't sound like a good deal. At least tell me that everybody else is going to have this fate. And he points to John, right? And goes, well, hey, what about that guy? Is he also going to be martyred? And Jesus basically tells poor Peter, hey, it's none of your business what I do with John. But the business of being the Lord's bride is quite serious. That God will ask of you what he did. That he will ask for you to lay down your life. It's a cross, but it's also a joy. Because in that suffering or in that trial or in that testing, this joy of the fruitfulness and future beauty and grace and peace for the earth to finally come is with us. The joy of the mercies upon mercies and blessings upon blessings that will come because so many in God's kingdom are willing to sacrifice and lay themselves down for the kingdom. Now that, that's a bride of Christ, right? There's this joy of a future union to the Savior that will be based on trust. And why is that so important? Well, Adam and Eve failed in the garden, right? They had intimate relationship with Yeshua, but they chose, they chose to disobey him. They chose to cheat. The bride is going to prove that she's not going to make that choice. The bride is going to prove that she chooses Yeshua. This requires something from her. And it does require that we become overcomers, like our Savior says he makes us, right? He says that he will help us to overcome. That's why we have armor we have to put on. That when the trials come, when the trials come, not if the trials come, when they come, that because of the armor that we've put on, we're going to be able to withstand that testing And because we decide to put the armor on and we decide to withstand the testing, we are proving that unlike the moment Adam and Eve chose disobedience in the garden, we want life. We are choosing our Messiah. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not going to sin. The big issue for us is we came into the world with sin already attached to us. (laughs) Unfortunately, we came in already, already marked for death, right? But here's the thing. Here's the thing. What does the Bible say you become when you have the Holy Spirit baptize you? You become a new creation. The desire of your heart is not to be wise in your own eyes. The desire of your heart is to please your Lord and Savior and to be a righteous bride. A bride who loves her groom is not cheating on him, right? 
she is so excited for the wedding that she's just spending time inviting people and preparing her 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 feast and preparing the party and preparing her wedding dress and she's so excited her heart is so towards her future husband she can't wait right and she wants it to be beautiful and she wants it to be amazing because she wants to honor the union that's taking place that's a bride that's a bridal mindset that is what we are supposed to be doing and that means you have got to listen so many people agree with this message so many of you are nodding your heads yes as you listen to this and yet you will not go out this day and ask the lord what he desires of you to do because you don't want to you must question this in yourself I question it in myself all the time, and I'm consistently disappointed with my attitude. But you know what? One step of obedience at a time, God is pulling me back and saying, do you really love me? Just like Jesus did to Peter, do you really love me? You love me enough to go spend your whole life in service to others and then die a horrible death, do you? <laughs> I mean, do, do I really love that idea, Lord? No, I don't, but I do really love you. So what are you going to say when Yeshua comes to you and says this? And it's going to be unique to you, right? God has a ministry that is all yours. But just like he asked the rich young man, you really want to follow me? You better go sell everything you have. Can you do that? Do we know if he did it? We don't really have a record of what happened to that guy afterwards. Are we willing to do it? I don't know. But no relationship that has not been tested can be blindly trusted. I do know that, right? You're not going to know if someone's going to be faithful to you on your first date. Okay? You don't really, you know, know enough, right? You know after time and testing and experience together whether or not that person is faithful but you don't even really know what that person is going to be like with you until you've been together for your whole life, right? Until you've been together 30, 40, 50 years. Because people change and sometimes people don't stay faithful and sometimes people don't really want to choose you and sometimes people do things they're not supposed to. And Boy, do I understand that, right? Relationships are a crapshoot, as my grandpa used to put it. You just don't know. Relationships that can be trusted, have been tested. You have the parable of the 10 virgins, which is a great example of this. Five of them don't buy enough oil, right? They're not prepared. They're not waiting properly. They don't wait in the way that the groom requires. And then they don't get to go with the groom when he arrives. But five do. Now, I love that it is the number five. Five representing the law and grace. Two things that go hand in hand. A bride who is ready for her groom has submitted to obedience and has grace with her in that process. She is in tune with the Holy Spirit. She has worked to prepare for the groom to be coming. She is ready. And so at the last minute when that trumpet sounds, she's not going to freak out, right? She's not going to be ill-prepared. She's going to have with her what is needed to be the proper bride. The whole of John 14 and 15 describes a groom going to build his house, um, you know, in the father's house for his bride. 
Now, this is very picturesque of a Galilean wedding. There's some great videos out there that can give you examples of what a Galilean wedding was like. So what the Jews used to do, it's very interesting. And the parable of the 10 virgins is also a perfect picture of this. The groom used to have to wait. So, you know, you'd have the betrothal and then you would not know when the wedding was going to take place. So the bride had this time where she was supposed to be preparing her wedding dress, preparing the feast, preparing the people, the location, just being prepared. But she didn't know when it was going to take place. And so she'd spend a lot of time in her wedding dress, actually just waiting for the groom to show up. Um, now, the groom was always going to show up at night. And you see this picture meant time and again that Jesus talks about. He's going to come at night like a thief in the night. Um, but no one knows the exact moment except for the father. Then now, now we can know the season. We can, we can probably pretty accurately say, yes, he's going to come during Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets, but we don't know the exact day. We don't know the year when the day and the time and the hour. Um, number one, because of how that feast works, you didn't never know the exact hour, but number two, what Jesus says, the father is the one who tells me, right? The father knows. Well, this was how a Galilean wedding worked. The groom would go and build a house next to his father's house for he and his bride. And the father would be inspecting. The father would be waiting. The father would be waiting for the perfect time to say, yes, this is ready. It's ready. It's time. And when the father said it was time for the groom to go get his bride, then the the groom with all of his groomsmen and the bridal party would tramp through the streets um, in the dark to go get the bride. And the bride needed to have a lamp ready. She needed to be in her bridal garments with the oil in the lamp. And in fact, I think many brides actually would just have a special lamp with filled with oil just for that moment of her groom coming. And then they would have a giant wedding feast. You know, it'd be very exciting. But John 14 and 15 describes this, that Yeshua says, I'm going to go build a house for you. Um, in my father's house, right? In my father's kingdom. And um, you're not going to know when I get to return. The, only the father knows that. John 15, 1 says this, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me, end quote. We've got this pruning taking place here. Pruning, you know, with pruning, especially with a fruit tree, I just did this with my apple tree. You're taking away branches that are heading in the wrong direction, that are not going to bear fruit, or that are confusing and blocking other branches. And gosh, this is how life with the Lord feels, right? He's taking things off. He's cutting things away so that we may bear more fruit. And so that we keep the main thing, the main thing, so that we're attached to the vine properly. Guys, this is a really simple message if we simply apply this based on our own human observations. God has made these things simple. We are the ones that make this message complex. This is a simple message. We can understand this, right? Yeshua wants a worthy bride. A bride that he can trust with righteous judgment because she's going to sit on the throne with him to judge. And he is not going to take the murderous and idolatrous, the liars and the, liars and the cowardly. We see this in Revelation 21.8, which says, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Okay? Well, that's not what his bride is going to be like, right? She's going to be brave. 
She's going to be truthful. She's going to be faithful. She's going to be life-giving. She's going to be the opposite of all of those things. Now, you you and I, you know, if you went through my health series, you know that I believe that there are just different final positions for people that go way beyond this lake of sulfur fire situation and the, you know, the shining heavenly Jerusalem. I think there are other places and positions that people end up in because of the type of judgment that we see happen at the great white throne judgment, because people are, even those who are not in the Lord, people are evaluated based on their works. That is just straight up in the Bible. And so I don't know what happens to those people. What I do know is that God is a righteous judge, and I don't believe that a righteous judge tortures everyone for eternity that didn't accept him. I don't believe that. You and I wouldn't even do that. We would go, hey, let's put an end to the torture, can't we? You know, I mean, can can we end the torture of people? How is it righteous? How is it good to torment and torture people for eternity when they never committed that level of heinous act on the earth? Listen, I know that the wages of sin is death, but what is death? Death is the, the non-existence of someone, right? They disappear, right? When someone dies, their body is no longer with you. When the second death comes and it's your soul dying, I just assume that means your soul is not, no longer there with you, right? No longer with us. The soul is gone. So we, you can go listen to that series. You can debate about that. Let's not have that be a divisive issue. We actually don't know, do we? We don't really know a lot about what the final positions are going to be like. I just know I want to be the bride. <laughs> so I'm trying to focus on that. Um, but I do believe there are different positions of people. And I do want to make that um, aside. That's not to say that there isn't judgment of people. I do believe there's final judgment. And I definitely do not believe everyone is the bride. And I definitely do not believe that everybody gets into the kingdom. I think the Bible's very clear about that. So um, I have this other kind of mixed view of things just based on my reading of scripture. Again, you can go listen to my series on hell to hear a little bit more about that. But um, I want to be the bride. And to be the bride or be nearer to God, we have to carry that heavenly bride's nature. And we must truly love our groom. We don't obey him for salvation or out of a begrudging nature. We obey him out of love for him. That's what he wants. That's always what he's wanted, Right. Like I said, I have this vision of running to the arms of my Savior. And I want to hear him say that he knows me because we shared the same word, the same covenant, because I bear his name and I come in his name. I come in Yahusha, Yeshua's name. I want to bear his name, right? And because I am in the word that he is, one with him. I have taken on that word. I've become like him. I've taken his DNA. I want to I look like him. I understand his mind. I've taken the mind of Christ as the Bible tells us. Taken the mind of Yeshua. He's going to know us then because we will be the same. How can we reject scripture and its dictates if this is our attitude? We are going to love all of the letter our groom has written to us because we trust that it is for our benefit so that we can eventually be one with him. That trust has to be there. 
So this is, again, this is a simple concept, guys. This is a relationship, but it is one that has been made so confusing by church doctrine. There is so much gobbledygook that has been embedded into church doctrine to make this difficult to understand, hard to grasp. We, we, we are either terrified of our groom or we are... Um, we are in a relationship with him where we think we can cheat on him and do whatever we want and he'll still accept us. Guys, no, that's not the picture of a bride. And you know that, you know what a good bride looks like, right? She loves her groom. She respects him. She respects his opinion. She respects his authority. She respects who he is. Okay. That's the fear of the Lord to have a deep understanding like, my man's powerful, right? I have a powerful husband. I respect him and, and I, I can call upon his strength when I need it, okay? You understand what a good bride looks like. Stop making this so hard, okay? Respect and love, that is the foundation of a marriage. The Bible tells us the gospel is simple. Here it is. It's in a house and a family and a marriage. It is simple, so what are we going to do with this? If your desire is to be close to the Savior, then you might need to shift your perspective on this, right? And your relationship with God. We may need to ask, do we really love Yeshua at that level, at that sacrificial level, at the level where we, because of a covenant, are willing to lay down our fleshly desires and our stubbornness about God's ways? We may need to lay down our haughtiness about what we think we know about Scripture and our judgment of others when pride is blocking our vision. We have these issues on both sides, whether you look at Christianity or Judaism or the Messianics. We've got issues with we don't want to either obey God or we want to be prideful about our obedience to God. That is not a righteous bride. Both sides repent. A righteous bride loves her groom so much. It's about love. It's not about how great she is. It's about how great her groom is, right? That's what she loves. And it's not about judging others. It's about helping others. It's about advocating for people to be in the kingdom. It's about going to God on behalf of those who are in need. It is about submitting our ways to the Lord. It is about being interested in the laws of God. Stop saying you don't have to follow God's word anymore. That is the opposite of what the new covenant teaches you. Jeremiah 31, you go to the end of that. It gets repeated in the New Testament. It gets repeated in Hebrews. I believe it's Hebrews 11, by the way. God's going to write his law on his people's hearts. His bride is going to have the law written on her. It's going to be a part of her. She is going to love it because she loves her groom. It is how she shows her love. This cannot be, you cannot debate this any longer. We have too much information now. Submit to God's ways. Go be interested in what he has dictated in his law. When John says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word that was God, the only word that was written at the time John wrote that down, the only word that existed was the law and the prophets. Yeshua is those words. He is those things. If you want to love your groom, you better know him. It's time to go study that stuff, guys, to understand exactly what Yeshua actually did on our behalf. We may need to ask forgiveness, seek peace, find joy, put on the armor of God, abandon addictions. You got to face the mirror and ask, am I a righteous bride of the King and Most High? I think in a lot of ways, we've forgotten our first love here. 
We abandon the precepts of God in exchange for the teachings of man because we forgot what a bride is, right? I want to know Yeshua. I don't need to know Martin Luther. I don't need to know Augustine. I don't even need to know Billy Graham. I, I am married to Yeshua. There's one, and he taught well. He taught correctly. He restored the truth of the covenants, the understanding of who God is. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. He's a reflection of the Most High. I don't need mankind's twisting of what Jesus said. I just need to know what Jesus said. I want you to go to the Word of God and test this. You test this, right? See if you don't see a family every time you look at Scripture. See if you don't see God coming after his bride in all of the stories of Scripture. That's who our groom is. He is waiting. And, you know, he is waiting with a smile because he knows his bride is beautiful. That's what he says about her in the end, right? She's good. And I want to be a part of that. And so I'm okay with correction, right? I'm okay with pruning. I'm okay with the Lord coming alongside me and saying, you were prideful there. You better ask forgiveness. You did this wrong there. You better change. Because, hey, that is the process. That is how we bear fruit. That's how I become more like my Savior. And I, I do think it's time for the bride to understand her position on the earth. Her position is not to be prideful and haughty. Neither is it to give in to the materialism and sinfulness of the adversary system that he's set up. It is to be set apart and holy, righteous and good, and a picture of all the things that God's kingdom really reflects. And it is to be submitted to the groom that is coming, ready and waiting for him, able to say no to evil without um, reflecting hatefulness towards God's creation right? We've got to, we've got to be like the bride. Boy, do I see division and yelling at one another and, um, so much hatefulness. You know, we can have a conversation just like this one and still love each other. Amen. Just like this one where we challenge each other, where we push each other, but we don't hate each other. We do this out of love. We do this because the great commission says, go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that is commanded. A great teacher inspires. A great teacher calls people into the next steps of obedience, right? Calls them into the destiny that our God has created for them. That requires a little bit more intelligence than just appealing to, you know, emotional negativity. And so I think God is requiring his bride to be like Moses. There's some wisdom in how Moses interacted on behalf of the people and before the Lord. So I hope that this teaching has blessed you. I know that my meditations on the bride of Christ and what she really is have really changed my perspective of my Savior. I I just realize how much I love him. And I'm so sad when I disappoint him. And that is the relationship, right? I just want to walk with him. 
I just want to hear his voice. I just want to be with him. Having that perspective really changes my interaction, you know, as I go throughout my day, realizing God desires that relationship with all of his people. And who am I to go out and put those people down that he is calling into his kingdom? I need to give them the truth. I need to speak the truth, right? But the truth is going to be freeing not burdensome. It doesn't become a cage. The truth is going to free them from confusion, which the enemy is the author of, right? From confusing doctrines, from chaotic doctrines, from doctrines that take them down a path that's useless, that's not fruitful, that's not productive. We're going to cut that stuff off to become the bride. Anyways, I hope that this teaching has blessed you. I hope you have your own time with the Lord considering the meaning of a marriage, the meaning of that relationship with God. And um, please like and share this post. I have not asked this of you guys, but in my uh, my pursuit to be able to do this more often and to bring you all more interesting teachers and teachings and to do more interviews with people that are fascinating and to bring this bring this to people, I do need support. I do need help. I just don't want you to have to give financially to get access to the teachings. So um, a like and a share will help me out and be on the lookout for um, what I'm going to do next that's going to be not only helpful for you, but extraordinarily helpful for me. Thank you for listening. Many blessings. Till next time.